Hi, welcome to Back to Excited, episode 85. My name is Arvin. Joining me as always, my colleague from PensionPlanPuppets.com. It's Acting the Fuleman. Hi, everybody. So, how are you doing, Fuleman? How's your uh, holiday season kicking off? It's good, yeah. Uh, I had to write an exam, which is mm-hmm. something that you would think that I'm too old to do. Mm-hmm. But my line of work has these professional exams that you get into to continue to get certified and show how serious you are. So I had to study and do all that stuff that I thought I left behind me. But the exam is done now, so I'm just sort of cruising and watching the leaves. How about you? I'm good. Did your exam go all right? We don't know. <laughs> we it don't happened. know. Yeah, the marks are not back yet, so I have no idea. I'm not going to call a coin while it's in the air. Let's hope for the best. All right. So um, to distract yeah. us, we have we have the Leafs, as you said, um, who played a what looked from afar anyways. I didn't watch the game yesterday. But what looked from afar to be a good game against um, the Oilers, who thankfully for us and the fact that we like mercilessly shit on the Oilers, they're, they're, not, doing quite, they're not doing quite that well anymore, right? But anyways, mm-hmm. the Leafs won. Uh, can you talk a bit about the game and what happened? Yeah, absolutely. So I think that this was a good Leaf game. It was very Leafy. They didn't look like a team that is good defensively for the most part. Uh, they had their moments, but you know they also they gave up a lot of chances. But they looked like the Leafs do when they're playing well, which is they generated more at the offensive end than they gave up, and they were in a position to legitimately outscore their problems, which they did. They got a strong showing from Freddie Anderson. And, you know, his save percentage will bear that out. But it wasn't like a sort of heroic one man against the tide showing like they've needed some nights. They were the better team. Uh, There were some really great performances. I thought John Tavares was good. Justin Hall is having kind of a coming out party, which is something we can talk about. Uh, Tyson Berry blocked a shot and got injured. Uh, We're not sure how seriously. Apparently, it's not very serious, but we'll see. They said that about Janssen and then put him on long-term IR. Yeah, and I I will note, in the offseason, when we were sort of beginning to contemplate just how tight we were to the cap, we wondered a little bit if injuries that were real, but perhaps not that severe, might kind of get stretched into being LTIR injuries just for the cap benefits. And my suspicion is that may have happened with Janssen because to go from saying, oh, it's not that serious. And then, oh, yeah, he's actually out for four weeks or, you know, what have you. That's kind of suggestive to me. I I think that that's a little interesting. So we'll keep an eye on what happens with Tyson Berry. Anyway, oh, yeah. And the third line had a really fun night. Mm -hmm. Um, Alexander Kerfoot, uh, Pierre Engvall and Ilya Mikhaev are clearly a fun third line. Uh, I enjoyed a lot of what they brought to the table. Um, By and large, it's a game to feel good about. The Austin Matthews line did not have a great showing. And so maybe it's a a good point to sort of expand into that more generally. Yeah, so uh, Katya had an article, I think, yesterday talking about kind of the weird thing that's happening with Austin Matthews this year. And um, I'm comfortable in saying this is actually, I'm not completely cribbing off her, her point here because this is something that she and I have discussed you know, as well. Where, like, kind of the way we put it is that uh, someone snapped the horn of the unicorn. And what I mean by that is Austin Matthews, in terms of how he generated offense throughout his career, was a unicorn. I wrote an article about this, I think, a year or two ago. That detail that basically he's an elite scorer, but he's the 
only elite scorer in in the league who has a combination of incredible shot volume, taking shots from almost exclusively good locations, so a very high expected shot quality, and then on top of that, the shooting talent to outshoot expectations conditional on his shot locations. So, you know, he takes only, let's say, I'm putting the numbers out of my ass here, but the point is, he takes shots only from the slot, so only like 10% shots, but he converts them because he's Austin Matthews at 15%. Mm. And he takes a lot of them. And, you know, those are the, th- generally speaking, those are the three ways to score. You either take more shots on people, you take better shots on people, or you convert on those shots better than people. And he does all three. Now, this year, the shot volume has still been there, but the shot locations really haven't. Mm-hmm. He's further and further away from the net. So the shot quality isn't there, and of course the shooting talent is still there. But it, it, it's combined to make him less of a, you know, all-world offensive force. And he still is. But before, Austin Matthews was, was in a class of one when it came to 5v5 goal scoring. Mm-hmm. And this year, it's that that loss of shot quality has been a little concerning because you start to wonder, okay, why is that happening, right? Why is mm-hmm. he shying away from the kind of more high-value areas of the net. So that's something that generally was happening uh, with Matthews this season. The other thing um, that I guess is more pertinent to what that line is doing right now, and I guess we should preface this by saying, despite Austin Matthews not having that, um, kind of stepping back in terms of his shot quality, that line, as we've discussed many times here, has been the least best throughout the start of the season. Um, And, you know, has been like a real elite top five line in the world, right? Or it's in that conversation. Mm-hmm. when it had Janssen and Matthews need enter. Now, with Janssen going out, for a couple games, he was replaced by Pontus Aberg, and then, more recently, he's been replaced by Kasperi Kapanen. In all of those games, I think that grouping, that Matthews, Nylander, whoever grouping, has not really had great stats. And I, I didn't watch the game last night. As you said, they didn't seem to have a, a good game, and the stats bore that out. And I saw some people on Twitter saying they basically just didn't get to the high-value areas of the, night, of the, of the ice. Mm-hmm. So I guess the question is, like, why is that happening? Is is the loss of Janssen that severe? Is it, you know, a bit of just small sample size randomness? Um, do you have any ideas as, as to why that might be? Okay, so bear with me here. And this is very eye-testy, and it's prone to noise. Uh, obviously, you know, to some extent, these are good players, and they will have nights where they're just really, really good regardless. So take this for what it's worth. But Sheldon Keefe's system seems to emphasize the third forward coming high in the zone. Uh, Everyone's been talking about this recently. It was predicted, and he's certainly been doing it. What that does is when you have a forward that comes back basically to the blue line, or sometimes even steps out, one that gives another passing option for a defenseman who's kind of in some trouble over at one of the points to keep the cycle going, and... For another thing, the defenders have to decide how far out do we come trying to chase that forward. Do we let him kind of kite us out of the zone? Or do we just sit back and let them control the top of the zone and set up and sort of reload and keep putting pressure on? They definitely do this, is the point. Like, this is a clear strategic choice. With the Matthews line, it seems to me like especially under this system, they've been good at creating cycles that don't really go anywhere. And often you have Austin Matthews, 
as the F3 who kind of winds up with the puck just inside the blue line near the middle. And then he kind of tries to work it back in again. And the result is they get shut out of the most dangerous areas. And he kind of settles for a not that great shot. Now, I don't want to get carried away with this because obviously they still have great plays from time to time. They have goals from time to time. But the feeling that I get is maybe they don't really seem to be rushing the way that they were previously in terms of getting those chances that are high percentage chances, in terms of getting the puck in the most dangerous areas consistently. You know, obviously it's not that they never do it anymore. It's just they seem to be still working out how do we be effective with this cycle. Like, we have the puck, we're on the outside, what do we do with it? And I think that that's being a bit of an adjustment for them, in my experience. Just partly because, again, if you have Austin Matthews and he's kind of starting way up there against a prepared defense, that's not really his preferred spot. So he's got to figure out how to be effective from there. The other thing is, you know, I think they miss Andreas Janssen a little more than maybe some people expected. I like Janssen. Um, I don't like Kapanen on that line at all. So I think that also plays a factor. Yeah, I mean, I guess this is a case where there are multiple things that are possibly mm-hmm. going on. I don't want to discount um, the theory you floated. I, I don't know if I 100% agree with it. Because, I mean... I don't know. If, if you look at the Tavares line, Tavares, Marner, and Hyman, you know, in principle, that, that line has a similar sort of archetype, right? Um, Tavares, he, obviously, he's a wonderful passer, but when he plays with Marner, he's a gunner. Mm-hmm. And you have Marner kind of on the on the outside, finding spaces, finding pockets, uh, using his amazing ice vision and his ability to read plays to set his teammates up for, for good shots. And you have Hyman just mucking up and creating rebounds and winning puck battles and, and, and whatnot. And I feel like that group has been very good, and we'll talk about that a little bit more. And they've managed to marry this system together, and it's not an altogether different set of skills than the Matthews-Nylander um, pairing. And this this Matthews kind of pattern of him being further away from the net also predates Keefe. It was something we've noticed from the start of the year, right? Mm-hmm. So... And this could be a multiple things are, are happening type of type of deal where the the offense from that group as a whole, I believe this this year took a bit of a, a step back. And part of that was the Leafs step back in offensive quality. And part of that was the league overall decline in offensive quality. Um, relative to the league, they're still obviously a very strong offensive, offensive grouping. I, I guess the question is, do we think that when Janssen comes back, they'll they'll figure it out? Because I think even with Janssen and under Keith, their numbers were still very good. It's really just been these past handful of games, past four, five games that Janssen has been out. Might be four, I think, where they've really struggled. And my read on that is Kapanen's skill set is essentially redundant on that line. Kasperi um, Kapanen's a good offensive player in the offensive zone, or he's solid enough, but... His calling card really is, as we've discussed, he's a one-man band. He almost It almost doesn't matter who his line mates are, right? Because he, he's a walking zone entry. Now, the thing is, with him on the Matthews line, you have maybe, you know, one of the, only one or two Leafs who are better than him at gaining the zone, William Nylander. So, you know, it's just his, his, that skill of his is not particularly useful anymore, and Kapanen's not 
incredibly adept at using his teammates uh, the way other players are. So I, I think, and certainly he's not helped by the fact that he's on his off wing. I think people have kind of soured on Kapanen to an extent where I think some people are saying, oh, you know, he's just a bottom six player. I don't think that's the case. I think Kapanen is a is a average top six winger. Like, I think he's a, he's a second line winger. Um, it's just we're spoiled by having two elite right wingers who kind of skew our perceptions of what offense should be or what offense, you know, we expect from that sort of position. And Kapanen is always going to look worse by comparison. Um, especially because his skill set is one of high peaks and low valleys, right? I think you've discussed this before where he has some skills where you're like, yeah, he's, you know, maybe in the top 5% in, of the NHL in just terms of his speed. Mm-hmm. But then he's quite a bit below average in terms of his passing. So all of it combines to, I think, make him an effective player, but he's one where your primary memory of him is him messing up good situations because he has the legs to get in those situations, but he doesn't have the hands or the brains to capitalize on them. Mm-hmm. Right? And then with, with Aberg, I think I like Aberg, um, but I don't think he's particularly good, and maybe that pairing with him uh, on the Matthews need end line would work better with time, but I, I think it's more just that group wasn't quite good enough. I would be interested to see how they, how Matthews and Nylander look with uh, Mikheyev. Right. As, as sort of, I mean, in that Hyman role where Mikheyev's a dogged puck pursuer, um, not the best with puck skills, and certainly he shoots a bit too much from bad locations, given, um, which would be especially annoying when, you know, Mikheyev has the puck at the top of the circle, and he shoots instead of, like, giving it to Austin Matthews or what you need. And it's like, okay, well, there are better plays. But... He is so good at winning puck battles. He has speed. Uh, he can finish a little bit when he gets in tight. I, I I wouldn't mind. I wouldn't mind seeing that. I think Hyman would also work well there. But like Hyman is a bit like the Jake Muzzin of the Leafs forward group, where the ideal the ideal partner, I think, or not ideal, but one of the better partners for both the Matthews Nylander and Tavares Marner roles or lines is having Zach Hyman on left wing because he does do all those things and. You know, you've you've supported Hyman a lot um, to the point where I think some people might think it's more of a meme than anything. But, like, we both genuinely think that Zach Hyman does a lot well. And I think he's still very, very, very undervalued. He is a really good player. It's just not in a package we're used to see it. Exactly. I think that there's a perception that when you have a really, really good a superstar pairing... Uh, of forwards, you can basically put any third guy with them and that guy will be fine. That's true for very, very, very high-end pairings. Like, I- I'm thinking, if you have Dreisaitl and Connor McDavid, I genuinely think you could play almost any NHL caliber forward with them and that guy would have a career year. But, there is actually a difference. You know, Pontus Aberg, who is a perfectly fine guy... Uh, is a definitive step down. I think a lot of people undervalued Zach Hyman just because they thought, oh, look who he gets to play with. You know, anyone can do that. And this is one thing that I think Mike Babcock had unequivocally right, was that he saw that Hyman was giving special added value more than was maybe immediately obvious. Um, So yeah, you know, I'd love to see him uh, on really either of those lines, but the Hyman-Tavares-Marner line is finally buzzing again. You know, we've talked about John Tavares' struggles throughout the first part of the year. He's back, and it's extremely encouraging to see. Obviously, having um, 
a fully functional Mitch Marner on your right wing goes a hell of a long way. But he just looks like himself again. More than he did at the start of the year. And, you know, that's... I, I think, you know, we said, like, the very first priority for Sheldon Keefe almost has to be, can you get John Tavares going again? Because that goes a long way. And he's done that. I give him a lot of credit for that. Uh, I'm not sure... <laughs> how much there was to do so much, and except, you know, he just came in with a change of attitude because he just put the Hyman-Tavares-Marner line right back together when he got the chance. Yeah. But, you know, sometimes don't overthink it is a smart thing to do as a coach. So... Yeah, and it's yeah. also, you know, it's this is the first stretch this year where all three of those guys have been healthy, right? Mm-hmm. Hyman was out to start the year, then Tavares had the broken finger, then Marner had the high ankle sprain. So yeah. they're, they finally... You know, it's been a bit of fits and starts, but they're finally back together, and they're the line we thought they would be, which is good. That's what we need them to be. We're, we're paying, we're paying two guys eleven million on that line for them to be a top, top ten, top five line in the league, right? Yeah. And the, the thing is, the thing that makes the Leafs legitimately dangerous is if we get them and the Matthews line clicking at the same time, and that hasn't happened in part due to injury. I, I, I and I do think, not to pin, similar to what we said with. When Hyman, or sorry, when Marner and Tavares struggled at the start of the year without Hyman, like Zach Hyman shouldn't be the difference between you being a top five line and you being like bad. Mm-hmm. It should be the difference between you being a top five line and you being a very good line. Yeah. Similarly, Andreas Janssen should not be the reason that Austin Matthews and William Nader have really like kind of struggled in the past few games. And I do think it's not like Matthews or Janssen is the guy stirring the drink. I just think they need someone else there, but they also have to take responsibility for, for their poor play the last few games, and especially their inability to get to those high-value areas of the ice. Mm-hmm. But at the same time, I do think that it will be a real boost when, when Janssen comes back. Um, and then if we do that, we're able to get that both of those lines healthy and running on all cylinders then we're in a much, much, much better spot. Yeah, I, I mean, the whole premise of our team is you're going to have two first lines, and so we're still waiting to have two first lines totally flying at the same time. Uh, Austin Matthews, for a while there, was shooting super hot, and he's capable of shooting hotter than most people uh, on a consistent basis, but Maybe a bit of a cooldown was inevitable. This will actually come up in my bad take of the week later on in the podcast. But, yeah, we need both of those guys gunning. We need them at a high level in order for us to be super effective because that's our strength, and that's also what we're paying an exorbitant amount of cap for. Yeah, those, those four yeah. forwards have to drive the bus, almost regardless of who's on their left wings. Mm-hmm. Um. So, again, like we do have to criticize Matthews and Nylander for, for their past few games where they haven't been good. Andreas Janssen should not be the difference between being a 57% ex- uh, expected goals line and being like a 46 expected goals. Uh, yeah, that's 46% insane. expected goals line. Yeah, like that's... I mean, and, and obviously, it's a tiny sample. I, I, I don't think anyone actually thinks this is anything more than a few kind of poor games from, from those guys, which happens to even the best of people. Right. Yeah. Um, I mean, you always have ups and downs, and uh, I, but they I do need to this. figure it out. They do need to step it up, um, and yeah, I think they would be helped by having an actual left winger on their on their line. Yeah, I, I mean, I think that that's a clear reality. Let's end the cap in an experiment now. Yeah, I mean, uh, we've seen it now with two different sets of elite center right wing pairings. Yeah, I right? like, like that. That should be done. 
Yeah. That's, so so yeah, when no. it happened under with Tavares Marner, you can be like, okay, you know, that that's kind of on Tavares Marner to a degree. When it happens again with Matthews Nylander, who have been like firing to start the year, it's like, okay, it's still on Matthews Nylander to a degree, but it's also it's we have more information that shows that this is not going to work. So mm-hmm. we should change that up, um, change that up as soon as possible. And and it's worth mentioning that like Matthews and Nylander have been so strong to start the year that their overall numbers are still very good. Like, if you look at them through an RIPM lens, they're um, both in the... I think Matthews is in, like, the top 50 uh, in the league in Corsi, RIPM. Nylander's in, like, the top 60 or so. Like, they're, they're, they both are very good at that. And if they're in that sort of range and they're creating and they're driving play well, they're talented enough that they should shoot and finish at an above-average rate, especially with Matthews on that line. Even, you know, not even including his... Um, step down in shot quality. He's still a ridiculously dangerous offensive player. He's just not as superlative as um, he was maybe last year, where you could say he was the second best offensive player in the world. Yeah, I, I would agree with that. I, I would note one maybe positive thing here, especially lately. I you know I think people have gotten on Matthews and Nylander for their effort, like they think that they're floating. And I won't lie, there have been times in the past where I've thought about the level of engagement of those guys and wondered a little bit whether it was all that it might be. Effort is a very dangerous thing to try and gauge with an eye test. Uh, you will be so prone to seeing whatever you expect to see, and you will see it in kind of a big mistake format where like one play sticks in your mind. However, I will notice... Austin Matthews seems to me like he's been making more positive defensive plays the last few weeks than I can ever remember. I don't know if that's because, again, with the F3 thing, if he's farther back, he's in a more defensive position on rushes uh, against, you know, like he's already kind of in the play as opposed to having to come all the way back out of the depths of the other zone. But he does seem to me like he's engaged and I've actually noticed him making good defensive plays. He's not, you know, no one's mistaken him for a Selkie candidate or anything. But I thought that that was kind of a positive development. And maybe it's just as much as anything, the kind of reinvigoration of the room from a new voice after, you know, X years of the bad cop experience. So, yeah. By and large, I'm not super concerned about Matthews Nylander generally. It's just... This is the thing about any time we seem to be critical of Austin Matthews. It's not so much that he's ever bad. The question is, is he very good? Or is he in competition for second best offensive player in the world good? And at his very best, he flirts with that latter thing. When he's not doing that, you think, okay, at this point, we're so reliant on him. We're so capped out. We need that to be our strength. And so we need everything we can get from Austin Matthews. So I see a lot of back and forth kind of where some people sort of resent that Matthews is being criticized and they look at the stats that the line has. And as you say, they're really, really good still. Yes, they're, I mean, like just to, you know, put numbers on this, Matthews on the year still has a 56% Corsi, a uh, 55% expected goals, and 57% goals for percentage at 5-on-5. Five five. and yeah, like, that's outstanding. That's yeah. very, very, very good. It's just, it's been a bit of a come down recently. So we're reading a bit into 
how the results have changed and whether there's something to that versus just it being a bit of noise. And the timing of that with Janssen's injury, I guess, maybe suggests that it's not entirely noise. It's just there's there's some other aspects of it too. But again, you know, that's what he and Nidander are paid very handsomely to do. They're, they're paid to produce not regardless of who else is with them, but they're paid to make to elevate people, right? They're paid to make sure that we don't have to invest that heavily in that left winger. Yeah, exactly. So they and do need to step it up a little bit. Yeah, yeah. So we just, you know, we need the best for them. So in the context of the ongoing conversation about Matthews, how good is he? What more can we expect from him? What's a reasonable standard? I think, you know, both sides have a point where it's like he's clearly very good. If that line is playing like it can at its best, warts and all, they can be the best line on a contender. It's just a matter of we really need to get as much as we can out of them. I don't want to fall into that mistake where I think every disappointing team, which the Leafs have been a lot of this year, is prone to blame its best players. Edmonton was obviously infamous for this for the longest time. Like They ran their best forwards out of town in succession over and over again. Um, because they viewed them as the reason they couldn't get over the hump when the real reason was that those forwards had no help. And so, yeah, just trying to see that straight as something to keep an eye on. Um, my biggest takeaway is, yeah, just stop playing Kapanen on that line. <laughs> I don't I don't want to see that anymore. Yeah. Um, I, yeah. And, I don't and, blame I mean, Keith for trying it, but come on. Yeah, and the Leafs issue really hasn't, I guess... If you look at it over the course of the season, it, it's it's been more the, the second line that, that's yeah. been the problem. But if we believe, and I think we both do, that Tavares, Marner, Hyman, they're, they're just back, period. Like, that, this is what we can expect from them. This is not like a hot streak. We had 82 games of them doing this last year. You know, all of the excuses have, have gone away and they're, they're delivering. If we have that, then, as we said, we're, we're a dangerous team. And, the, and I think, I haven't checked the numbers on this, um, but I don't think the bottom six has really killed us. I think they've been fine. Yeah, uh, Kerfoot has been a little bit below par, I think, on net. It kind of comes and goes. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm not super concerned with that. It was really just... The, the great thing about John Tavares is, you know, in addition to the things that he's really, really good at, he's not bad at anything. You know, we've talked about this before. He's a reliable two-way center at this point in his career. He can finish. He can make plays. He can go head-to-head against other teams' top lines and come out at least as well and often ahead. And so he's kind of our Swiss Army knife in, you know, like a golden Swiss Army knife almost because, you know, he is at such an elevated level. But unlike a lot of our other players who have more pronounced strengths and weaknesses... We rely on him to kind of be the do-everything player. And so having him back doing that and having that line not get, you know, outshot or outchanced or what have you, uh, that's essential to us. Like, I don't think we survive without an effective John Tavares. Like, we're just not good enough beyond that. Yeah. So, obviously, this is encouraging. Yeah, and I guess I should amend what I said. Under Babcock, the, the fourth line was had, had horribly sewer results in part because they weren't very good and in part because they had this absurd usage. Um, do you know how that's changed under under Keefe? Like, how, how have the third and fourth lines uh, been in, in his, with him at the helm? Yeah, well, I mean, the first thing that I would notice is they don't seem to use 
Uh, like, Keefe has not been using his lines the same way that Babcock did in terms of that really lopsided fourth line usage. Also, they've been given less time on ice as well, if, I, yeah, I, I believe. Yeah, and Gauthier has been scratched at times. He had, yes. a, he had a nice goal last night, which was a lot of fun. And again, if you let Freddie Gauthier score on you, you are officially an AHL team. Yeah, <laughs> sorry, that's it. You get relegated. The rules are what they are. Uh, yeah, but like the usage is no longer going to be what it was. It was so pronounced that it's like it's kind of hard for me to um, like to, to really know how to evaluate this. We talked about that at the time, but they were getting the most extreme zone start usage that I've really ever seen for a full for a full um, season there. And so Goche is still playing like when he plays he still does not start in the offensive zone very much because why would you yeah i mean like what's the point you have freddy goche but like when i looked under like late stage babcock goche's offensive zone start percentage was like five like he, he was like it just basically didn't happen now it's 25 so like keith has kind of brought that usage back to sanity he also like he just doesn't seem to have as much time for goche like, someone actually asked him, it's like, you know, what does Freddie Goche have to do to, you know, get back in the lineup every day? And, you know, you know, you might expect him to say, oh, you know, he's going to just keep grinding, as Babcock would have said. And Keith was like, there's not really anything he can do. We're just trying some different looks. But he basically came pretty close to just outright saying, look, he's Freddie Goche. I know what he is at this point. I'm not going to get preoccupied with it. He basically said, you know, he's a nice guy. He's doing his best, but... When healthy, he's probably not in the top 12 forwards on this team. And I think that's probably true. Yeah. You know, like, I don't want to play him at the fourth line center over uh, Jason Spezza, for example, warts and all. Um, certainly not over Pierre Engvall, who looks to me like he might have a bit of that dynamic quality. I don't, like, you know, I think, speaking of Engvall, it's easy to get carried away with uh, Rookie of the Month. So to speak, like whoever's the new hotness, especially when roster. especially when said rookie of the month has a one hundred two PDO. Yeah, <laughs> that never hurts. But uh, Engvall looks to me consistently like, especially you know he had a couple of nights where he was playing with Gotie and Timishov, and Engvall looked like the straw that stirred the drink there. Like he was just like he had the puck way more. You heard his name way more on the broadcast. He was engaged. He was making plays. I think we may have a player there of some description. I, you know, I think Gauthier is what he is. We've had a lot of fun with him. I really like him. He's still done much more than I thought he would, but, you know, he's he's a fringy player. And so, yeah, I think moving away from that kind of funhouse usage that we were doing earlier in the year where we were basically conceding okay we have a fourth line that can't do anything offensively let's just plunk them in the defensive zone endlessly and see if that works it was an interesting strategy i'm curious as to where it originated but i didn't really like it and i'm not unhappy it's over yeah so yeah i yeah. agree with that i mean this is a simplistic way of looking at it but basically if you if you like just look at the least and you sort them by expected goals percentage at the top, you have the Matthews. I'm looking at people with, like, reasonable amounts of time on ice. So, yeah, actually, leading is Jason Spezza, who, whenever he's played, the, the Leafs have done very well. And I, that's probably partly down to 
him playing quite well and also perhaps the usage he's getting, which is uh, maybe more particular. But broadly speaking, like the, the Matthews line has, has led the way. And I think as a group, um, they're around like the 53.5 to 54.5% mark in, in expected goals percentage. And if you hope, okay, maybe they exceed that a little bit by like a percent. You know, you hope to get a 55% goals for percentage out of them or something like that, right? Mm-hmm. Then there's a huge cluster of people in the low, like in the low 51s, in the mid, uh, sorry, in the mid to, mid to, mid to low 51s. And then a huge cluster of people that are like just slightly below 50%, including mm-hmm. uh, John Tavares and including like uh, Mitch Marner, who, who's at 51.34%. So if, if those guys increase to the same level, we get like a 55 percent goals for percentage out of that line as well you basically if you if your bottom two lines just do okay they they tread water or slightly less you're in a good spot because mm-hmm. over half of your time of your uh, team's time on ice is going to be taken up by your top forwards right so if you have just if you take the average of 55 and 50 that's 52 and a half right and you bump it up because the 55 percent people get a bit more time on ice you're at like a 53 percent goals for percentage you're a good team yeah, that's the it's worth- theory of how it should work. Now it's never that clean. It's not broken up that that nicely, but that's just kind of the simplistic way of of viewing it. Yeah, I would. And so this is. Uh, <laughs> I remember Katja saying that she wants like a buzzer for any time someone says small sample size, but, mm-hmm. and it like <laughs> just sort of like blocks whatever you're gonna say. But since Keith uh, came on, uh, the Tavares line is destroying. Like, since Keefe uh, came in as head coach, uh, Tavares has 61% of the expected goals. If you can do anything like that consistently in any kind of minutes, you are a dominant line. Like, that's really, really good. Um, kind mm-hmm. of amusingly, Timoshov and Gauthier are actually ahead of them <laughs> under Keefe. Um, obviously, I think... You know, that, that's especially small sample size theater because they haven't played all the games. And also, you know, they're just not being used in that... Uh, it's insane usage that they had before. But, yeah, I think that you can start seeing your way back to the theory of the Leafs, which is this is how they win. Yeah. You know, like, this is how this team looks like a contender again. This is more like what we thought they were supposed to be. And if you, if you want, you know... Yeah, sorry, go ahead. You want to make sure you don't fall into the trap of everything that is good will stay good and everything that is bad will correct itself. Mm-hmm. Right? Because that, that's how that's Absolutely. how 31 teams think, oh, yeah, we're going to be better this year than last year. Right? Because all the things that went right for us last year will continue going right. And all the things that didn't go right for us last year will go right. So you have to be careful about yeah. that. But I think with the least, there's, there's legitimate reason to believe, okay, yeah, we should expect strong performance out of the top two lines. Right? We've seen the Matthews line do it and it didn't seem like a fluke. We've seen the Tavares line do it for even a longer period of time, and they're finally getting back to what we want them to be. If that happens for a sustained amount of time, then we're in good shape. Now, we've actually, we've talked entirely about the forwards here. We should talk about the defense yeah. as well. Yeah, the defense is, and he's having a moment right now, but I feel like it's best to start with Justin Hall. Yeah. Because Justin Hall is really interesting. Mm-hmm. Um, he had a great game last night. He mm-hmm. played with Jake Muzzin, uh, and, you know, I think we've said many a time, Jake Muzzin is still generally the best um, defensive defenseman on the Leafs. 
I think that's unequivocally true. Mm -hmm. He's looked a bit off lately to my eye and to other people's eyes. His numbers have been terrific. Yes. Under Sheldon Keefe. Um, you know, he's playing behind an effective offensive line again. Um, defensively, he's still got the ability there. But Muzzin and Hall seem to have formed a quite effective pairing. And it's been encouraging to see. We've talked, uh, we were talking off air and we've talked in the past of how good do we think Justin Hall really is. I was saying previously, like, look, I think I thought he was a guy who could play six defenseman minutes and be fine and whatever. And I'm revising that upward a little bit now. I'm starting to think, okay, maybe there's more there. Maybe he's in the four or five territory, you know, like if he's putting up these numbers with Jake Muzzin, that's an effective, like fairly heavy usage pairing. And that's good. That's encouraging for us. I don't want to get too carried away with it, but I've liked a lot of what I've seen from him. You know, he is suited to this kind of system. Sheldon Keefe knows him obviously quite well from their experience with the Marlies. Hall does a lot of things well. He's a big guy. Uh, he has good range. He's a good skater. He makes some decent passes. I've been favorably impressed. I like. I think under Babcock, even when I was seeing him get into games earlier this year, I was thinking, yeah, you know, he's Justin Hall. He is what he is. And I was not that impressed. I'm starting to wonder if, you know, okay, maybe it is time to be impressed. Maybe it is time to say, okay, we might have more here. So. Yeah, I mean, I think that's fair. Um, I, I certainly still give a lot more of the credit to Jake Muzzin for that pairing. Oh, yeah, I mean... Like, Jake Muzzin is, like, a very good defenseman at what he does. Yeah. I think, you know, it's easy to miss it because he's not a great skater. Mm -hmm. Like, he's not very fast, and it stands out on a generally fast team, like the Leafs are. Mm -hmm. But, mm -hmm. like, he's the guy who's in the right position most of the time. So. Yeah, and I mean. Yeah, I mean, he's the guy. <laughs> yeah, so with Hall... I guess I'm in a similar spot to you. Maybe I'm a little lower on him. Maybe this is just me being obstinate because I didn't think that much of Justin Hall when the whole thing with, oh, Babcock won't play him. I was kind of like, I mean, sure, you can play him. I, I, I don't think he's going to be a savior. And, mm -hmm. I mean, even right now, I don't think he's a savior, although he, he might turn out to be the best Leafs right-shooting uh, right defenseman. And, I mean, I, I guess that speaks more to the their lack of quality on that side and how how much worse Tyson Berry is than I thought he was. And we could talk about that, oh. too. Um, yeah. But he's formed... He can be a guy. I think this is showing. He can be a guy on a solid uh, on a solid pairing. Right? On, on getting meaningful usage. I, as I said, I do think um, Muzzin is doing the bulk of that. It, it, if you dig into their numbers a little bit more, um, what's really propelling the Muzzin-Hall... Uh, pairing is their offense so the, the, funnily enough uh their expected goal rates against are exactly the same as muzz and berry it's the offense mm -hmm. that is way better and i think i'm a little skeptical of i'm a little skeptical of um pairings that have elite offense especially from guys who aren't known to be elite offensive play drivers and we don't have any evidence that suggests either of those guys really are but I think so. I think the most likely scenario is they're getting some minutes with the Tavares grouping, which is finally starting to assert itself, and that's 
juicing their offensive numbers. So it, it might come down a bit. Um, certainly Hall seems to help that. He, he is a good puck mover. Um, mm-hmm. he, he is someone who makes kind of those, those small, smart plays that Keefe has kind of instituted across the roster. That seems something that comes very naturally to Hall. You know, the, the circling back, the pausing for a second to wait for a forechecker to fly by uh, and give yourself a better angle. Things like that are, are legitimately good from Hall. I'm not willing to say right now that like, oh yeah, he's a top four defenseman in the NHL. I'm not entirely sure. We, have, we don't have enough information to say. I am mm-hmm. comfortable saying that he looks like he can he can survive on a pairing that plays actual minutes. It's worth mentioning, this is all relative to like the very, very low standards for defensemen. Right? Like, we're, we're not... Yeah, we're grading on a curve. This is, this is like any port in a storm territory. Yeah, absolutely. I, I mean, yeah. it's all, And it's also, you know, it's a question of the history that we have for Justin Hall. You know, I've, I've talked a lot about the amount of deference that I give to coaches, to people who seem to know about the game. And so when Mike Babcock didn't see something in Justin Hall, I'll freely admit that was a point in my evaluation. I knew mm-hmm. even at the time, even when I had a higher opinion of Mike Babcock, when you get into his doghouse, it's really tough to get out of it. And I do think Justin Hall was probably in a position where it's like, you know, what else do I got to do to show that I should be played more? And yeah. there may not have been anything that was in him to do. I think he is kind of more of a Sheldon Keefe defenseman. Like this seems like his element and i think that part of the reason that he's looked as good as he has lately is as you've noted one he's got a good partner two he's playing behind uh rejuvenated Tavares line but three he's playing with a coach who likes him but also coaches a system in which he is uh suited to be quite good and so does that all that add up to now he's the top four defenseman well I, I don't know. <laughs> we'll see. He's been playing like a top four defenseman, and it's been working so far. We do not have enough alternatives, as we said, to really do much but keep trying that until it stops working. But someone asked me for a, a mailbag article that I did this week about what I expected in terms of contracts for Justin Hall, Travis Dermott, a couple of others. And looking at it, Justin Hall reminded me of guys like Greg Paterin, or Nick Jensen, who we've talked about. Guys who broke in in their mid to late 20s. Not huge point producers, but who put up pretty impressive fancy stats with decent usage. And I feel like if Justin Hall weren't already on the Leafs, if we had no history on him, I think he might be the kind of guy that nerds discuss as maybe like a sneaky buy candidate. So if we are you know, looking at this longer term, I do wonder, is like, is it possible to give Hall a couple of years in the low 2 million range? Because I would think about that. We're betting a little bit on a limited sample here, but I've liked what I've seen and I'm willing to keep revising my opinion on Hall. So trending is up, still a lot to be written, but positively impressed. Yeah, and I think, I think one thing, if we kind of doing some self-reflection here, I think one of the more common mistakes that we make is probably putting too much 
emphasis into what coaches think or what coaches we respect think and certainly we both respected Babcock and his decisions even if we didn't always agree with them like we we mm-hmm. one of the most common things that we say is you know don't assume that everyone's an idiot right so you know and I, I do tend to believe that by and large the elite coaches get more right than wrong but yeah this is another data point that suggests you know maybe we have to um you have to be careful with that and certainly this is something that stats twitter talks about a lot especially with how vegas did uh early on um mm-hmm. where you know a lot of these guys were just players who weren't getting a ton of time and it turns out they, they were quite good and that's a bit oversimplified because vegas was propelled by very good goaltending from our country who everyone knew was good um nate schmidt who was a again a common fancy stats darling who turned out to be legit and he was it wasn't a, really a question with schmidt of oh, his coach hates him. It was just, you know, he, he just wasn't getting a, a ton of time. Um, and then when he did, actually, I guess that's, it's fair to say, he, he, he should have gotten more time than he did. I remember when we faced Washington in the playoffs and um, Orlov came out for, not Orlov, sorry. Who was that really crappy Washington defenseman? Who Alsner. Was, Alsner, yes. Alsner came out for Schmidt. Uh, they were just way better. So actually, I'll revise that. Schmidt was a guy where that definitely falls into this bucket. Um, and then Vegas was also propelled by Jonathan Marcheseau, William Carlson, and Riley Smith, who, again, um, Marcheseau and, and Smith were, like, good players, like, verifiably good players who GMs misvalued, and then Carlson was just a ridiculous freak of player development. Um, yeah, I, I mean, I, I just like to say this as an aside, and I want to emphasize this again. Dale Talon should have been fired for that expansion draft. That's all I'm saying. Yeah, um, yeah, it was anyway. absurd. Um, but yeah, the, the the crux of it is, I don't think, a lot of people took that to mean, oh, you know, coaches are, are really dumb and there's a lot of times where they're just straight up wrong. And I think that goes too far the other way. As always, there's there's kind of a medium where if, if a certain number of coaches all kind of agree on a player, I tend to think that for the most part, they'll get that right. But it's certainly not infallible. And I think kind of reflecting on the mistakes we've made in player evaluation. Um, it, it's been mostly on the side of we, we trust coaches perhaps a bit a bit too much. It's also, I'm going to also toot our own horn here. These aren't huge mistakes in player evaluation either. Like, I've gone from saying, oh yeah, Hall's probably, he can survive as a sixth defenseman to, oh uh, yeah, he can survive on like a, a decent pairing, like a, a more meaningful role. Mm-hmm. I still don't think he is, you know, a star defenseman or I don't think he is driving the bus on that pairing. I, I really do think it's Muzzin, and because Muzzin has a history of doing exactly that. Yeah, I, I mean, that's kind of the bottom line there. But, yeah. I, the only other thing is that just riffing on the any port in a storm thing, where, like, when you have such limited right-handed defensemen or flawed right-handed defensemen, there is a real tendency to look at a guy like Justin Hall, and when he shows anything, you think, oh, thank God. And I fully admit that is a feeling that I'm getting. You know, like, I'm just relieved that we have someone who looks like he can do that. Um, but it has been encouraging. And, you know, like, last night he was standing toe-to-toe with Connor McDavid. You know, even if you have Jake Muzzin with you, that's a tall order. And he came through it. So, yeah, I, I think it's legit to be positively encouraged by this and by several trends under the Sheldon Keefe. The question is... Are they positive enough that we're, as a whole team, kind of tracking to make the playoffs again? Because we dug ourselves such a hole 
and we still have such noted flaws that it's still going to be tough to make it. We have to play well the rest of the way. We can't just be eh, good enough. You know, good enough isn't good enough when you've been bad. So, yeah, just trying to keep an evolving perspective on that. But uh, he's been encouraging. Something that has not been encouraging. <laughs> and we've complained about this before, but Tyson Berry, I mean, now he's, he's possibly injured right now. Mm-hmm. We don't know, again, as we referenced earlier, what degree of severity. Will he be out long? Will he not be out long? Man, uh, I, I've about had it with Tyson Berry, to be honest with you. Mm-hmm. Like, I recognize that he's a good player and that you don't get better just by replacing him with Guy. I don't recognize that he's side a good of player. The road. Yeah, actually, you know what? He's a good player in the sense that he's better at, you know, most of the world than hockey. But... He seems like the quintessential guy who has a lot of skills. And yet when I look at the impact he has on the team, I'm like, this isn't translating to winning. This isn't translating to the team succeeding uh, to the extent that I want them to when you're on the ice. And my frustration with his play is kind of Getting really up there. You know, I know that everyone liked to talk about, like, what a new man he seemed to be under Sheldon Keefe. And certainly he was he was used more. You know, he was getting more power play minutes. He had the puck start going in for him. He looked like he was having more fun. And, you know, I don't discount that as being without value. It's good to feel like you want to come to work in the morning. But I see a player who is extremely poor in his own zone and who forces shots for himself in the offensive zone. And as much as he's agile, as much as he has, you know, a respectable defenseman shot, I don't want to build a team around offensive defensemen like Tyson Berry. Even like peak Morgan Riley, who is, you know, we've noted he's been struggling most of this year. Um, It is also worth noting, Morgan Riley seems a bit more like himself lately. Like he's had a couple of, (laughs) <laughs> one of them was occasioned by Tyson Berry, but he's had a couple of really energetic, full-speed back checks where he caught guys who had a head of steam. And that was a bit more of the athleticism that I'm used to from Morgan Riley. Like, he's so gifted that he can bail himself out of trouble sometimes. But, like, Morgan Riley, I've seen be a component, worse and all, of successful units of successful teams that relied on him heavily. Tyson Berry, I genuinely think, is an easy guy to talk yourself into because if you use him the right way, he could probably score 10, 15 goals a year and put up a lot of points. I genuinely wonder how low his salary would have to be for me to want to extend him this summer. It's kind of moot because it will be a lot less than what he actually gets. I want no part of his next contract. Yeah, no, I... I just, I really, I genuinely don't think he's that good a defenseman. I think he's good at, I mean, he's good at scoring points. And this is something I've talked about this on the podcast. And I guess this podcast is a bit of a record of my evolving thoughts on this, but I just, I I don't care about points. I I don't. I, I, I barely care about them for forwards. I care about them even less for defensemen. Yeah. It's like you could have these defensemen who get used on top power play units, who play behind great offensive lines, who aren't doing a hell of a lot. And the, the end result is, is this guy actually effective? 
I don't think he has been. Now, granted, you know, he had a really brutal start to the year. I'm sure that this was, like, as bad a start as he's had. And maybe he has more to offer. But, like, when we talked about the Kadri trade, we were still thinking, okay, mostly we're, we're keen on Kerfoot. We, we recognized we were giving up the best player in the deal. But, you know, I thought Tyson Berry's like, okay, he's going to stabilize that second pairing. And, we, you know, we have a, a weak right side. He'll certainly be the best player on it. But he hasn't been. Like, Justin Hall has been our best right-shooting defenseman, I think. Yeah. I, and as much as I kind of sung Justin Hall's praises, that shouldn't happen no, to a guy with Tyson Berry's reputation. It shouldn't. If you're, if you're a contending team, a team that has designs on being, you know, the Stanley Cup champion, and you say, yeah, when everyone's healthy, Justin Hall is our best right defenseman, that's a problem. Because, you know... Even if I revise my opinion of Justin Hall further forward and say he's a top four defenseman, you don't want just like a generic top four defenseman to be your best right-handed guy, mm-hmm. right? That's not really ideal, and it and that's just the like I think he's just better than Barry. Barry is. I don't think Barry actually helps the team. He is a. I want to, I guess, be careful about the word I use here because the word I'm thinking of is, is he's a selfish player. And I don't mean that in the sense that, like, oh, he doesn't pass and, you know, he, he doesn't like his te- doesn't like his teammates or doesn't use his teammates or he's a bad person. I, none of that. But he's a player whose style of play lends, to, lends itself to good results for him and not necessarily good results for the team. And this year he doesn't even have good results for him in terms of points. Mm-hmm. Right? So it's just, it's just been a bit of a... A failure on all counts really and I know he has a very very nice Corsi and even a decent enough expected goals his expected goals percentage is 50% it's just he's gotten very very unlucky in terms of uh, his on-eye shooting percentage you know it's supporting a 6% on-eye shooting percentage I'm sure I wouldn't be excuse me I wouldn't be as negative if that was higher and if his on-eye save percentage was higher Right? He's currently sporting a 96 PDO. He's not as bad as he's looked. No. But um, it would be hard to be worse, yes. frankly. But but just looking at the, the total <laughs> uh, package, like, is he basically just an average defenseman? If you look at his yeah. impact metrics, he's positive in Corsi RAPM, um, but a lot of them are pot shots. In expected goals RAPM, he's slightly negative. Right, so let's say around average, and that's what he's been around for most of his career. He's had these kind of really high swings, but on the whole, if you aggregate it, yeah, it's been like an average defenseman, which I guess is like a three-four typically, right? And that's not, yeah, that's not that good, right? And I think <clears throat> we, as you alluded to, we we thought, oh yeah, he's gonna he's gonna be like a, a solid three, like on the upper yeah. end of what you would expect from that, and he hasn't been. He's been a middle-of-the-pack one and possibly even worse because I do think there are... I do think, (laughs) to some extent, he has earned his poor on-eye shooting percentage or on-eye save percentage, rather, because there are some some plays where I'm like, an expected goals model says that's a 25% chance. That's a 70% chance because it's it's such a ridiculous misplay by him. Yeah, like the net is wide open and you've made like a perfect pass to a guy sitting there (laughs) who's for the other team. Yeah, he... um... I don't know. And and again, you know, I'm always trying to correct for the tendency to when you see a guy look really, really bad and it's burned into your brain. um, That can 
color your perception, you know, like you can start talking yourself to this guy being the root of all the problems. But like I was recapping uh, the Calgary Flames game and not even talking about, you know, like the collapse or anything like that. He, you know, he had a misplay on one of the goals, but like all of my notes about him were like, I don't know what this guy is thinking. Like he's making just super questionable plays and he's forcing it. You know, we t we've talked about Keith activating the defensemen and kind of empowering them. And by and large, I'm kind of on side with that. To be worth activating, though, you have to exercise a certain level of judgment. And there was one memorable pinch uh, against the Flames, and Riley bailed him out by just zooming back on the back check and interrupting a partial break. But, like, he just went way after it with no support and nothing behind him. I remember that pinch. I remember, like, posting in our Slack, literally... What the fuck was Barry just thinking? It was insane. And I have to assume he thought he had support. Because otherwise it's legitimately ridiculous defense. I, I don't know how he could have thought that. Because the three forwards... And this is a bit of a failure of the three forwards. Where you had basically three guys below the goal line. So that's, that's not yeah. ideal, right? That means you could end up with an odd man rush going the other way. But if you're Barry and these guys are in your line of sight... Like, I mean, can you do basic math? There's three guys below the goal line. There's, you know, I'm one of them, or I'm, I'm another player on the ice. So that's four people, which means at most I have one person behind me. Mm-hmm. Like, do the math, man. It's not hard. Yeah, I, I don't know. It's, it's, I'm sure that, you know, expectations are the father of disappointment and all that sort of thing. Mm -hmm. But... I think in a season where there's been a lot of disappointment, what I really find myself coming back around to is Tyson Berry is not even what we thought he was, and I think we were probably more guarded. Even at the time, we were like, oh, this guy's some up and down. So, you know, we're probably going to keep him as an own rental unless we totally fall out of the playoff race. Mm -hmm. But, like, I cannot see a situation where we are at all eager to re-sign him. And to his next team, good luck. Yeah. And in fairness, like, we should also... A lot of what we're saying also applies to Morgan Riley. And there's a few reasons why mm. I guess we're being nicer to Riley. One, we have more emotional attachment to him. Right, I, I think oh, that's, yeah, we like him. Yeah, that's certainly part yeah. of it. Two, he hasn't been PDO'd as badly. So he doesn't stick out yeah. in our mind. Uh, and three, Riley has, like, the plausible deniability of an injury, and he's, he's looked a bit better of late. Certainly that Riley-Berry pairing, it's it, it's not a complimentary pairing, I, I guess is the, is the polite way to say it. It's, it's you know, do you want some peanut butter with your peanut butter? Like, it's just more of the same. Yeah, it's wild, the degree. To, like, I, I actually don't know that I can really think of a prominent pairing that was so one way and was nominally at least a, the first pairing on the team. Like, it's all offense all the time. And, you know, the whole thing under Mike Babcock for all of Morgan Riley's career was basically we're going to put him with, you know, Mr. Safety Defense, like Ron Hainsey or whoever else. Um, yeah, woo, that's something. But also, I would say, and, and, you know, this is absolutely my personal thing, defensemen who aggressively force their own shots drive me nuts. And Riley, 
even though he shoots a fair bit, doesn't seem to do that as much to me. Like, he doesn't seem like he's that prone to be like, oh, look at me, and just I'm clapping it off the back boards, and then that's the end of the sequence for us. Like, I've seen Riley play in a way that is conducive to sustaining longer offensive pressure or to generating follow-up chances. And even though I'm not saying, you know, he never wastes one, he feels like he does it a lot less than Barry does. You know, again, it's so hard to stay out of emotional reasoning on this sort of thing, but yeah. Anyway, you know. Yeah, I mean, I guess uh, Riley, <laughs> Riley's an offensive defenseman who gets points, but also elevates on-ice offense, his, yeah. like more historically anyways, whereas Barry hasn't really had that, right? So that's that's what I mean when I say that Barry is more of a cannibal, right? Mm-hmm. So, you know, and this is this is actually kind of borne out if you look at, um, if you look at their expected goals for our APMs, which is a measure of, you know, how much does a player impact their team's offense? Not their individual offense, but the team's offense when they're on the ice. If you just look at their last three years for each of them and sort it by, you know, expected goals 460, RIPM, Riley's three years are the highest ones and Barry's three years are the lowest ones and Barry's negative in two of those years, right? So like, despite him having individual offense, it's not really like he is driving the bus for the team. It's the equivalent of... Mm -hmm. Barry's like the DeMar DeRozan of, of, of hockey. Mm. He can put up numbers, but it's not clear exactly how much he's helping your team. Yeah, I think that that's probably the bottom line there. You know, I, I do have to say, like, look, he's capable of being better than this. He's capable of looking better than this. As we've said, he's getting PDO'd to some extent. It's just... You know, I have a few specific things that I think are easy to fall for, I guess. Like, he's exactly the kind of guy who I think teams are going to overpay for. Yeah. You know, we we talk about um, that kind of dream power forward. Uh, Someone like Milan Lucic. Like, he's one of those guys where teams love the idea of a player like him. And, you know, as a result now, that's one of the worst contracts in the league. I think the the defenseman who puts up a lot of empty points is kind of akin to that. So, yeah, I mean, I guess that's our bottom line. I, I don't want to rag on this too heavily because I feel like if you look at this road trip as a whole, you can see pros and cons. They imploded in Calgary. Uh, there's no getting around it. That was a game that they were certainly in a position to win and or at least get a point out of. And they kind of gave it away quickly off some, like, a a bit of a down moment for Freddie Anderson and then some some iffy defense, and then a failure to stage any kind of real comeback. But they also played well at times, you know, like they they came out of it 3-1 and against teams that are not pushovers anymore. Uh, The Oilers, as much as we make fun of them and as much as I don't know that they're that great, you know, they're not a joke anymore. Um... And so I think that, you know, on net, we can be, I would say, moderately encouraged with how things have gone. Like, this team is starting to look to me more like a version of what I expected. Still flawed. Still kind of iffy. I'm still really worried about the backup goaltending. If Freddie Anderson goes down, we're, we're going to tank right away. Mm-hmm. 
but I think you can start seeing the uh, the road to success for this team once again. Yeah, it, it, I mean, it becomes a question so. of do we have the ability to dig ourselves out of the hole that we're we're currently in? And I guess mm-hmm. as it gets later on in the year, we'll talk more about standings, watching, and and, and stuff like that. Um, but before we go, you had a bad take you wanted to discuss. Yeah, this is more of just a general thing. Um, and I want to specify, this is about Craig Kustens, who's a reporter for The Athletic. Previously, he was with ESPN. And it's about the articles that he writes, but it's not a criticism of him. Craig Kustens is a good reporter. He's very connected. And every now and then, he does these polls of scouts, executives, coaches. They're all permitted to... Uh, speak anonymously and to just comment about players to enable them to be honest that's obviously totally fine but he does these massive surveys of like here's what we think of each of these players and every time I read one of those you know I've talked previously about trying not to take the attitude that people who do this for a living are stupid they probably have a good reason for a lot of things they do they have more experience than we do because they've had to do the job and they've had to learn and function in the job. But man, some of the quotes that Kustens gets in these articles are just like, wow, I don't think that these guys are very bright. Or like, you know, like it just, they like they talk in a way that is a bit like, they're still reacting to stuff as if it's a mystery. Like here's the quote about Austin Matthews in this most recent article about microcores, which is, I don't even know about that as a concept, but whatever. It says, early in the season, Matthews was unstoppable with his shot. That seems to have dried up completely. I saw him early. People were talking about his shot, and they were right. Uh, shooting percentage. Welcome. I hope you're enjoying your stay. It's like, it's dried up completely. It's like, yeah, that's what happens with shots sometimes. Sometimes you score on 20, 25% of your shots for a bit, but you don't sustain that by and large. And that's just how it goes, you know? And it's like, if this is like our big takeaway, because like, that's kind of one of the money quotes about Austin Matthews in this article. I'm just not convinced that like, these people are doing much in the way of analysis. Maybe they know more than they're saying and they don't want to give it away or something like that. But it is kind of disconcerting when there's just a level of I don't know. Like a lot of the quotes just sound like we're still in 1985. You know? Yeah, no, it, it's it's insane, right? I mean, I, <laughs> when you look at it that way, it's like wow, we we definitely you and I definitely do put too much emphasis on what what players and or what um management and coaches think if this is what they're thinking. Right? Cuz it's just bafflingly dumb. Yeah, and I don't know. You know, now to be fair, it's not all of them. You know, there are some good quotes there. There are people who say things that are, um, you know, sensible and intelligent and insightful and all that sort of stuff. But the net effect on the whole is you're like, what is even going on here? You, you know, like just in the way that players are discussed where it's like, guy who gets points is good. Guy who doesn't get points is bad. Uh, guy who hits a lot is good. Guy who doesn't hit a lot is soft. You know, and that's fine uh, as far as it goes. But it feels like it's like, is this where we're at still as a league? Like with all the work that people have been putting in, with all the numbers that are coming through. And again, like you don't have to be any kind of elite math person. I'm not. 
Like, <laughs> I haven't taken math since high school. I am not 100% convinced I can do long division without a calculator because I never have to. It's just like, just think a little bit. Just engage a little bit or use some of those stats that supposedly all these teams have uh, that are proprietary and forming your opinions. And so just every time he has one of these articles, the most recent one I will say was not the worst I've seen from him. Sometimes you get opinions on there where you're just like, what's happening? Like the, the, the summary of like the goalies, he had one a while back where it's like they just sort of ranked all of the goalies in this extremely weird and arbitrary system. And I'm pretty sure it was just like sort by goalie wins over the last five years. So, yeah, anyway, that's my little rant. And again, it's not really Custance's fault. Like, he has to report what they say. He's a journalist. And it's worthwhile to report on what people around the league are thinking. But it's, like, it's kind of discouraging to think, that, like, is this the level we're at internally among the decision makers in the NHL? Yeah, it's very... <laughs> <laughs> it, makes you, it makes you question. Anyway. It makes you question a lot. Yeah. Anyway... Oh, that's my little rant. Yeah, no, it's a justified rant. Um, all right, so I think that's just about it uh, on our end. Thank you all for listening. You can follow us. On, uh, I did this in the wrong order. God damn it. You can catch all of our stuff <laughs> at pensionplanpuffets.com. You can also follow us on Twitter at RV and AT Fulman. I promise I won't screw up the outro in the next podcast, which will be next week. So thank you all for listening, and we'll see you then.